All who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. And the whole city was gathered around the door, And he cured many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. And when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. And he answered, Let us go on to the neighboring town, so that I may proclaim the message there also. That is what I came out to do. And he went through Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. In the heart of Montgomery, Alabama, under the veil of a frost-bitten December evening in 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus. And by that simple act of defiance, She announced a kind of declaration about self-respect, about the resounding demand for justice that echoes across all of the years. Rosa Parks wasn't the first to challenge the norms of bus segregation. She wasn't the last either. But her quiet courage, it's shown as, as a beacon that prompted, that began the civil rights movement. And it was a testament that would rattle the very core of American society. Now, as she stepped onto the Cleveland Avenue bus, drained from a grueling day's labor at a sewing machine, she bore the weight of an oppressive history on her frail shoulders. was a part of a history marked by oppression and the persistent demand for submission. Her feet and her fingers, along with every other part of her, throbbed with fatigue. But but it was the bone-weary tiredness bought with 350 years of being told in every imaginable way that you are little better than an animal. The front rows of the bus of course, reserved for white passengers, filled up quickly. And when she was told to give up her seat, she remained silent instead of submitting. Her refusal had a greater impact than any speech she could have offered that day, I guess. 
Well, the bus driver, of course, he didn't much appreciate her intransigence, so he called the police. But her dignity remained intact despite her arrest and the humiliation of being dragged off in handcuffs. But instead, this, this simple act of defiance, it served as a powerful protest against a system that was built on the backs of black Americans for generations, forcing them to endure indignity as a, as a way of life. Of course, her, her arrest sparked outrage, leading to the now famous Montgomery bus boycott, which lasted for 381 days. And this, this boycott is, transcended the community of Montgomery, Alabama. It was, it was the rejection of a self-serving narrative that demeaned black Americans as inferior and somehow unworthy of the same dignity and rights as their white siblings. See, see Rosa Parks' defiance inspired the young Martin Luther King announcing the rise of a symbol for equality. The boycott led to the Supreme Court ruling that declared bus segregation unconstitutional, and that sparked a wave of change throughout the South. This is, this is a humble seamstress, right? From Montgomery, Alabama, Rosa Parks became a symbol through her simple act of refusing to be treated as less than she was. It was a sacrifice that, that, that distilled the collective struggle of black Americans into, into a potent brew of outrage and dissatisfaction. It, it was a silent announcement that shouted to the world, no more. Her arrest photograph, which captured her resolution and dignity, has become an iconic image a powerful emblem of passive resistance. Now, all these years later, the, the, the story itself gets watered down, I think. It is sort of reduced to this simple tale of a tired woman uh, who refused to give up her seat. But, but, but her story is so much more than that, isn't it? I mean, it's a powerful testament to courage, resilience, and the fight for equality. She sparked a, a revolution. Her refusal to accept injustice, it became, through that small act, a kind of beacon of hope for people who'd been relentlessly beaten down. And by it, she inspired generations to stand up and speak out against discrimination, against injustice. Her, her, her simple defiance, it represents a kind of calculated strategic resistance that's targeted right at the very heart of these structures that maintain injustice, and it strikes crumbling. So the, boy, the boycott succeeded. And it succeeded in showing that even the simplest actions by people without reputation 
Those kinds of acts and people can challenge the establishment and they can plant seeds of change that nobody ever thought was possible. Because, I mean, there are certain things that go beyond just being deeds, right? I mean, they represent a, a kind of powerful defiance that transforms. Rosa Parks chose to stay seated on that bus. It was a simple act, obviously, but it carried the weight of years of pain and, 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 and what must have seemed to many like a misplaced sort of optimism. But, 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 but her action said quietly, but in a, in a way that everyone could hear, we've had enough. We've had enough. See, because some acts just aren't, they aren't just acts, are they? They, they have much greater meaning. Some acts are bigger than we even know. I mean, the kiss of your beloved after a fight isn't the same kiss you get when you head off to work, is it? The physical act may be the same, but the meaning of the act changes depending on the circumstances. Walking up the steps of your family home after being away for 10 years can be an entirely different experience depending on your reason for being gone so long. I mean, it could be exciting, right? It, it, it could be full of dread. Even though the steps still creak in the same way, regardless of what you anticipate when you walk through the door, it's the same place, but it's not the same. The miracle stories in the Gospels are, are, are often the same sorts of things. Jesus isn't just wandering around uh, Galilee curing people and doing magic tricks. In the ancient Near East, there are, 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 were plenty of wonder workers. What set Jesus apart was the backdrop against which he did these acts. But take healing, for instance. The Gospels are less interested in the physical details of people's maladies, by and large, which is entirely opposite of how we deal with sickness today, isn't it? I mean, when the Gospels talk about sickness, they... They mention it, and they move on, but we don't deal with it that way, do we? You know, for us, it's, you've been sick. Oh, God, what's wrong? <sighs> COVID. But did you have that racking cough, like, like, like forever? Can't get over it? Yeah. And, and, and the fever, and, and the, yeah. Weakness? I had, yeah, I hated that. I couldn't hardly get out of bed. Sense of taste, and I lost it. COVID's the worst, isn't it, right? Instead of talking about all of the symptoms and so forth, in ancient cultures, these, these episodes are treated more generally, which is to say more like an illness than as a sickness. Now, and I'm, I'm, I can see on your faces, what can that possibly mean? Well, prior to the kind of medicine practiced in modern times, one's health was, was not just a description of uh, what was going on with your physical body. It was a description of the whole self, not just the, the modern fixation on, on, on symptoms, right? One's health took into account not only the physical, but also the social, the economic factors that came along with it. 
So for instance, in an agrarian society like the Galilee of the Gospels, which always sort of dwelt on the, rager, or excuse me, the razor's edge of poverty, for most people, being sick didn't just mean suffering physical inconvenience. It also had socioeconomic implications. Not so different, actually, from a lot of places in our own world today. Back in Jesus' time for a day labor, not being able to work even for a short period could spell financial ruin, ultimately destitution. And part of the problem for day laborers who were already teetering on the, on the brink of life and death uh, battles was this sort of vicious vortex of doom because they already lived at subsistence levels and so day laborers in Jesus' time had really no margin for error. They needed to work in order to eat. Okay, that makes good sense. But if you can't work, then that means, of course, you can't eat. And malnourishment leads to fragile health, which in turn prevents you from working, which then prevents you from eating, which makes you sicker, which makes you miss work, world without end. Amen. The life expectancy for day laborers in Palestine during the first century was about one to three years. It's not that different today, even with modern medicine. Being sick if you're rich is entirely different from being poor and sick. I mean, even for life expectancy, let alone the socioeconomic costs of illness themselves, I mean, who's gonna pay? Will I be able to keep my job? If I lose my job, am I going to be able to keep my home? If I lose my home, can I keep my kids? If I have to buy expensive medicine, will that mean I can't buy food, can't pay the electric bill? See, if you're wealthy, being sick is mostly about being sick. If you're poor, being sick oftentimes is not even the worst part of it. Consequently, we, we, we should note that Jesus' healing ministry almost exclusively focused on the illnesses of the poor and not the sickness of the rich. In that sense, his healings were a statement about the nature of the world in which being sick and poor could be deadly. I mean, these are the kinds of inequities that this new reign of God is supposed to remedy. Also, in a society where sickness was a sign of religious impurity, your place in the religious and social order would be damaged. So, 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 for example, leprosy in the Gospels, which comes uh, right after our story for today, uh, wasn't necessarily anything like what modern medicine classifies as leprosy. In the world that Jesus lived in, being a leper not only meant you were sick, bad enough, but it also put you outside the boundaries of the community. It cut you off from your family, from polite society. It even cut you off from God. As a consequence of this dynamic, the Gospels talk about Jesus in terms of healing and not so much in terms of curing. That's not necessarily to say that Jesus doesn't alleviate people's physical suffering, but that those acts are, that they take place in a framework in which the very lives of the poor, their, their lives in total, are imperiled by their illness. And so healing isn't just an act like any other act. 
it, it, it can be a kind of revolutionary experience. I mean, just think about our, our text for today. So upon leaving the synagogue after healing a man with unclean spirits in our gospel for last week, Jesus goes for the traditional post-worship pot roast dinner at Simon and Andrew's house, only to be told upon arriving that Simon's mother-in-law is laid up with a fever. So Jesus takes her hand, lifts her up, what do you know? She's better. Able to get up now, take the yeast rolls out of the oven. Now, let me be quick to underscore the point that I was just making. When, when, when we moderns hear that after her fever breaks, Simon's mother-in-law gets up and starts serving everybody, some of us blanch, right? I mean, it sounds like Jesus has shown up just in time to heal her so that she can set out the hors d'oeuvres. Women aren't just around to serve men. I mean, we think indignantly. We're thoroughgoing egalitarians, after all, and rightfully so, I might add. Me too, time's up. Women have been victims of patriarchy for way too long. We know that. But though our modern reaction to this text might be very well enlightened and progressive, it, it, it does fail to take something very important into account, and that is context. I mean, the problem that this poor woman suffered, apart from the critical problem of having an, a fever, which in the ancient world was life-threatening, could be, beyond that was the loss of her place. As the matriarch of the home, a woman's responsibilities as hostess bestowed upon her great honor an important kind of status in that culture. The woman's sickness would have vexed her, not just because it was dangerous, not because it was inconvenient, but also because it prevented her from fully living up to who she was supposed to be. Her social role gave her both dignity and it identified her and located her within the community. So everybody knew who she was. She could know who she was. In other words, Jesus' healing restores her not only to health, but to community as a fully functioning participant. Now, I think we have good intentions, but we got to be careful not to project our understanding of how the world ought to work onto Jesus or on to other cultures necessarily, because we'd like to think Jesus would do things that we think are right, but the problem is he always seems to resist working anybody else's agenda but his own. He knows who he is, and he's perfectly content to do what he needs to do, whether it meets anybody else's approval or not. Now let's consider the first two stories of Mark's, or excuse me, Jesus' Jesus' ministry in Mark's gospel. In the first, he cleanses a man of unclean spirits in the synagogue, right? And in the second, he heals Simon's mother-in-law at uh, Simon and Andrew's house. Now, in the first case, the man who had been unclean is made clean and returned to the worshiping community. 
In the second case, a woman who's been prevented from fulfilling her role in the community is raised to wholeness and allowed to resume her duties, duties that define her and her sense of self, duties that mark her place in the world. Now, if we take these two first two stories of Jesus' ministry in Mark seriously, then I think we're left to conclude that Jesus understands the right thing to be the restoration to full participation in the community to those who've been cut off. The right thing in Jesus' mind is to allow people back in who've been left on the sidelines, who've been forced to press their noses against the stained glass windows trying to get a glimpse inside. He offers not just a cure, but what people really need, and that is true healing. Because, I mean, here's the thing for those who follow Jesus. There are too many people who've been cut off from the community that the church at its best has to offer. The mentally ill, the physically sick, the immigrant, the poor, the impoverished, the imprisoned, those just too scared, too tired to risk walking up those stairs, walk through that door and find out what's on the inside. Because of divorce or sexual orientation or gender expression or race or just because they cheated on their taxes or on their spouse or themselves out of a future that they once thought was possible. There are too many people who have for too long been made to feel as though the table around which we gather has a place only for people who look and act and sin like us. But if, if Jesus' mission is about healing, about reestablishing the dignity and purpose of others, or of helping to find a place that's safe and affirming, then perhaps we, who are his followers, ought to follow suit. But perhaps we should be less concerned with doing what everyone else thinks that churches ought to do and worry more about what Jesus calls us to do, to make a place in the world for those who have no place. Can you imagine that world? A world where everyone has a seat at the table, where no one is outside the bounds of community, where the divisions that keep us cut off from one another have been healed. Because, I mean, what if what's going on is bigger than we know? Not all acts are created equal. Some acts, some acts can start a revolution. And according to the rest, of the, the rest of the way the world keeps score, that's really not much of a mission. But see, that's okay because we follow Jesus. We, we know what it looks like to know who you are. We don't need anybody else's approval to do what we know to be the right thing. We don't need anybody's permission to love, to love one another. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, 
Please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.